Welcome to Home Health 360, a podcast presented by Aliacare. I'm your host, Jeff Howell, and this is the show about learning from the best in home health care from around the globe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Home Health 360, where we speak with leaders in home care and home health from across the globe. Today, we are going to be chatting with a couple of folks that live and breathe home health mergers and acquisitions, both from Robinson & Cole, a 175-year-old law firm based in New York, spanning eight states. We have Kiernan Ignacio, an associate who is a member of the firm's business transactions group assisting with all aspects of corporate transactions, including mergers and acquisitions and other strategic transactions. Kiernan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's nice to be here. Um, I definitely live and breathe healthcare M&A. I'm, I'm a generalist, a, an M&A generalist by um, trade, but since I've joined Robinson & Cole about a year ago, I've done a lot of work with Les, who I'm sure you're going to introduce, and probably about a dozen deals in this space alone. So um, definitely took a dive into the deep end over the past about 15 months or so. Oh, great. Well, that's why we have you on today. (laughs) And we also have Les Levinson, the co-chair of the firm's health law group, and he concentrates on the transactional, regulatory, and compliance representation of healthcare and life science clients, including home care, hospice, physician practices, hospitals, information technology, medical device companies, healthcare equipment providers, and healthcare investors and lenders. Les, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Um, We're looking forward to a good conversation. As as you know, and the audience knows, it's been an incredibly busy space um, over an extended period of time. So uh, I'm excited to, to have this conversation with with you and, and with Kiernan and, and uh, sharing our experiences with the audience and looking forward to it. So thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, as the U.S. began emerging from the worst of the pandemic last spring, large home care and home health companies, including companies like LHC Group and Emeticis, publicly said that they're on the hunt for acquisitions in 2021. Both companies announced acquisitions across all segments, and we've even seen deals announced in the hospital home sector so healthcare mergers and acquisitions are a no short supply right now as uh, companies and providers and payers are all looking to expand and, and gain a competitive edge. Give us a little bit of background. Um, I hadn't come across you folks before reading in, about you in Home Healthcare News as you were quoted less. And uh, so give us some insight into your health law practice. Uh, what kind of clients do you serve? Uh, I did notice you're around for 175 years. Love to learn a little bit more about some of the deals that you guys work every year. Um, thanks. So, yes, we've been practicing this space for a long time, um, not 175 years personally, but more than, <laughs> more than uh, a little over there, more than 30, more than 30 plus years um, with, a, with a major emphasis, as, as you noted, in, in health care and with a particular um, attributes to home care and hospice. So let, let's take a little bit of a step backwards and talk about that market a little bit if we can, and, and then tell you a little bit more about the clients if that if that's a, a good way. Let's to do it. The question. So, as we all know, 2020 was was an unusual year. Um, the beginning part of the year uh, was the onset of of COVID, um, and it certainly took folks quite some time to react to that. Um, 
particularly home care and hospice companies, were triaging how do they keep up with, with new regulatory regimes, how are they going to take care of their patients. And we began to see that that stabilized towards the second half of the year. And the second half of the year from June on really became quite, quite active. Um, and any transactions that we're going to mention have been publicly announced, so we feel confident in, in mentioning uh, names there. So the second half of the year was, was quite busy. And I would say, and I think you had the same experience, Karen, because you worked on a lot of these transactions with me, 2021 was an explosion. Um, I think we can fairly say that we probably have one of the more active home care and hospice M&A practices in the country. Last year, we completed, in 2021, we completed 17 transactions, fairly equally split between the buy side and the sell side. So a number of the transactions that we handled were in the mid to upper mid market. Um, Again, a lot of that activity uh, was purely in home care and hospice. Some of the deals are pretty well known within the space. We handled the Symmetry transaction. Um, We handled ViaQuest, um, which we capitalized with Council Capital, Integrity with Biata, um, in tandem with Providence Care down in South Carolina, Amedesis with VNA in Nebraska. So that's just a sampling of some of the deals that we did. A lot of them were with private equity firms. Some of them were with institutional buyers. and I'm just going to turn part of that over to Kiernan because I think as she began to get more um, active in the space, I think she got to see a wide array of buyers um, and sellers structuring different kinds of transactions. Um, and it really was, I think, probably a year that, that it's going to be it's going to be one for the ages. Um, you know, as people look back at the volume of transactions. And anything you want to add to that? Well, yeah, I think. Just also hopping back to Robinson and Cole being a 175-year-old firm, and um, Jeff kind of listed off all of the different areas that both you and I work in. Uh, I, I should add, too, that it's a Hartford-based firm, though we do a lot of the M&A work out of the New York office. Um, healthcare M&A is in an interesting area because there's a lot of um, regulatory and very industry-specific knowledge that goes into transacting any of these deals. Um, as well as just having a general corporate M&A practice. And you heard um, some of Les's expertise in technology. We have IT practice here. We have insurance. So um, the way that we work on all of these deals is to draw on, on a lot of different areas of expertise. So healthcare, M&A, and all of the other kind of ancillary um, aspects of the deal. And yeah, support for our clients. And, and I think one of the things that makes us maybe a little bit more unique, particularly in the mid-market, is that um, while our oldest office and our legacy office is in Hartford, um, we are a national practice, um, and certainly our M&A practice um, is national. In home care and hospice, we've done deals in 38 or 39 states, and as I sort of ticked off some of those transactions, some of those are on the East Coast, some are the West Coast, some are South, some are in the Mid-Atlantic, um, some are in the Midwest. And I think the really the, the reason is because we understand that space. We know how to get transactions done um, effectively and, and efficiently for clients. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether we're practicing out of New York or maybe someone's located in Connecticut or in some in some other market. Um, we understand the space and, and and have a good feel for how to get these deals done. 
Well, COVID certainly has sped up this uh, location, uh, a lack of location dependence in our, our world now. It's more about do you have the knowledge and really people can work from everywhere. I was really interesting. Uh, it was interesting when you said that you used the word explosion for the deal velocity for 2021. What do you really attribute that to? Do you think it was a lot of uh, nervous sellers that were suddenly impacted from COVID? Yeah, I think I think it's an, a number of different factors. So as we began to emerge in the second half of 2020, um, people were, were getting comfortable or more comfortable with doing deals remotely um, and being able to do diligence, um, you know, while not ideal via Zoom, um, having meetings. So as that began to take a little bit more um, hold, and as we turn the corner into 2021, so you had capital markets being very strong, an abundance of capital on both the equity and debt side, interest rates being very low. You have pent up demand from 2020 and maybe even backing up a little bit into 2019 for deals that needed to get done um, and capital to be deployed that now has a place to go. And, uh, and that was one factor. Another factor, which clearly was very important for at least the first nine months of the year, was this looming um, fear of, of a major change in the tax laws in the United States. Um, and a lot of transactions were really driving towards a hard date of, of 1231. Mm. Um, I think case in point, Kenan, how many deals did we close in December? Five? Right. And I think, you know, we, Les and I each had probably three deals apiece. One, the integrity deal together, closing on December 31st. So buyers, uh, sellers by hook or by crook, closing by 123121. <laughs> Got it, yeah. This is the um, something to do with the capital gains tax was going to go from 23% to 43% or something like that, right? Well, it was definitely some, some, some fear that capital gains were going to be raised significantly, um, at least a 10-point um, add-on, and that's real money. So, yeah, sure. So, you know, while you, you always try to counsel clients that you have to evaluate all the factors in doing a transaction, you know, taxes are certainly important. That shouldn't be the only factor. But, but when you're looking at a potential large uh, change in, in what your net is going to be, that, that's a huge, huge impetus. Um, and there were some deals that frankly didn't get done because they started too late in the cycle where parties were talking about a transaction in October or even November and saying, we we want to be done by 1231. And the answer was, it's just not going to be possible. Yeah. My next question was going to be, uh, have you found that the velocity of the deal cycle has uh, changed during COVID? Uh, are things taking longer because you're working virtually or were things faster because uh, we're just in unusual circumstances where buyers might be that much more motivated? I think we definitely have probably eliminated any delay in timing due to being on the remote side. Transaction teams are are pretty much seamless at this point, working from wherever they're working. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely been some COVID-related delay built into a lot of these deals where, you know, state regulatory offices are sitting there with stacks of papers because there can't be that many people um, processing them and things like that. Yeah, I think as we got deeper into 2021, we began to see a little improvement in that as people were coming back into their offices, staffs um, at the agencies 
were able to pick up a higher volume um, of work than they had been processing earlier. So I think to really fully answer your, your question, Jeff, it, it really depends on the year you're talking about. I think mm-hmm. 2020 was a lot different than 2021, as we noted before. I think people got comfortable with how to do all these things remotely. And I think, if anything, the deal pressure was much more in 2021 for all the reasons that we talked about. Um, pent-up demand, competition for assets, um, abundant capital, a concern that tax rates were going to change and we really need to get these deals done. And we were finding that transactions that might normally take five or six months in the normal cycle were getting pushed and getting done in 90 days. Um, that was that was really um, quite, quite noticeable. I think part of it also was that there's a certain kind of reverse efficiency when you're sitting remotely and you're not commuting or or having the business travel and go to an airport and maybe your flight's been canceled, you, you can just work more hours. And I think, you know, everybody in the, in the cycle sort of understood that. One other comment, though, um, as you got deeper into 2021, certainly some resources began to get really stretched. So you were finding that firms that were providing quality of earnings reports or clinical support for... Um, for transactions were really at the point where they just, they had no more bandwidth. Um, and I think probably to some extent law firms and and, and accounting firms too, uh, you know, later in the cycle, we're beginning to reach that. And if you can't have all of those components, it's really hard for a transaction to get done. So that, that's really, you know, October, November, that's really where the pipeline really got stuffed to, to the max. And that there was just, there was no more capacity to, to do any more deal. Yeah, you can only run as fast as the uh, the slowest bottleneck in the whole chain, for sure. So now we're in, um, you know, knock on wood, we're uh, sort of, everyone kind of feels like we're getting back to normal, but we have, we still live in a strange world with um, inflation, labor shortages. Uh, you know, you're old or you know, the price of gas is really high when you're, when, when I'm talking about, it, I'm a lazy consumer that I've never cared, but um, with what it is right now. I'm curious uh, what you guys see might be shaping the landscape the most in terms of the ma- macroeconomic factors for M&A activity moving forward. You know, um, I, I think there are some consistent themes among both the home care and the hospice sectors. Um, it's the two R's, it's recruitment and retention. And I think that continues to be um, a concern for both buyers as well as um, sellers in being able to take on the volume of cases that they want to be able to staff and just having a clearer trajectory as to what your growth pattern might look like um, if you don't feel like you're going to have the labor supply um, consistently to staff those those cases. Now, I, I just want to make one other comment and, and wanted to ask, you know, Kiernan's view on, on, on that too. Um, so those have been, those have been real concerns and those concerns have been evident probably going back to, you know, 2020. Having said that, um, there is still very healthy appetite in both home care um, and hospice. I, I do think that we're seeing a little bit of brakes um, pumping in the last probably 30 days coming out of uh, 
a very, very extraordinary 2021. But I think all indications are that the second half of the year, Q3 and Q4, um, are going to be strong. And, and I think that view is probably fairly widely, widely shared amongst other M&A practitioners and, and bankers because we're all kind of operating in a big pond, but the, the pond isn't all that big when, when we're all kind of doing some of, of similar things. Yeah. And what are you seeing? Well, we have private equity funds that need to be deployed. There's money that needs to be spent and there's going to be enthusiasm in this space. Um, with all the challenges that the industry faced, the ones that you mentioned, with everything that COVID taught us about giving, supplying these services and um, social distancing and, and communicable diseases being factors in um, the provision of these services. There's still going to be a lot of enthusiasm. This is going to be a defensible asset class because um, another lesson from COVID is that people want to um, choose home care. Mm -hmm. They want to continue to choose this. I know I personally uh, in 2019 was beginning to look for options for my father. My sisters and I were looking at um, congregate living situations. And when we saw the, you know, a lot of the effects that that COVID had on group living situations, that was off the table and it's going to be home health care. So, you know, it's still going to be an attractive place to invest. It's almost like you can see my list of questions here because the next uh, question I had, Karen, is, are you guys seeing a uh, little bit of uh, integration with facility-based care? So, um, you know, the folks that are providing facility-based care that want to get into uh, home health, or uh, are you seeing the opposite where um, maybe there's more home health providers popping up to serve this need? Let me let me jump on that first, first but I, it's been, kind of been an interesting, um, and when you look at the transactions, um, I don't think we have an entirely clear, clear message coming out of that. I mean, we you alluded to them a little bit earlier, Jeff. There have been some very, very large, almost seismic um, transactions, which suggest that um, a company like United um, wants to have a broader platform of services that it can offer to um its customers, but I think the industry still, most of the consolidation that we're tending to see, I would call a more pure play, um, where it's continuing growth in a home care platform or continuing growth in a hospice platform as opposed to, um, you know, more vertical integration. Although I think, too, you know, it's not just group group settings and home care settings. There's um, what, what we're doing right now and what we've all done, and this goes in the healthcare um, space too, is virtual um, services. And um, we may be kind of far off from where that's eventually going to go, but that may be another, um, an, an, another way to diversify your ability to be responsive. Well, I think telehealth is definitely, is definitely here to stay. Um, and, Many providers were utilizing telehealth um, to the extent they were able, certainly in, in the early part of the pandemic when they weren't able to either get workers into the into the home setting or or they couldn't go see the patient. So I think that that piece is definitely here is, is here to stay. 
Do you see the money changing? I'm curious, um, you know, as the, as the layman, I, I basically feel like there's a, a very, you know, few really big institutional players that are sort of coming into the space. I'm wondering if you've seen any uh, changes or trends because the, the provider side, you know, you can be a $3 billion company and, you know, have less than 5% market share. It's, it's crazy how fragmented the provider side is. I'm curious if there's, um, you know, do 20% of the, the, the people on the money side, are they controlling 80% of, of the activity out there? Or how would you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think I think not. I think the industry is still pretty is pretty fragmented. Um, that that statement has, has probably been repeated for the last ten or fifteen years. It continues to be um, a somewhat fragmented um, sector, and that's probably going to continue. That lends itself well to M and A activity because consolidation and M and A are you know kind of kind of one and one in the same. Interestingly, we did have um, a couple of large transactions early in the year, and, and it, we're going to have to keep a close eye on that and see whether those are going to be harbingers of things to come. There are um, five or six large institutional-type home care hospice providers that are publicly traded. I think you, you, know, you, you know them all. I mean, one of them is, is um, now going to be acquired by United, so that universe, um, you know, is changing a little bit. Um, and I think it really depends on the type of transaction that you're doing. Um, if it's a multi-billion dollar transaction, there aren't that many players that can write those kinds of checks, um, mm-hmm. those kinds of transactions. There's a lot of mid-market private equity interest in, in this space that's been true for some period of time, and we see that is continuing. Um, they've raised a lot of funds, uh, and those kinds of acquisitions are certainly more manageable in a multi-billion-dollar transaction. And there's a lot of players in, at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's say if we go down a level, if I'm a growing home care or home health agency, what what should I be thinking about if I if I want to develop a uh, growth by acquisition strategy? I think the first thing that you're, you're thinking about is where, where do you want to be? Um, are you trying to build a stronger regional platform? Um, is that, is your strategy more of a national play? Are you going to be a multi-regional provider? Um, there are some that sort of fit, fit that bill. There are other providers that are almost blanketing the, the United States. So um, I think that's probably your first determination is where where do you want to be and where do you see your ultimate growth pattern going? I mean, I think you would agree we've seen that with some of our clients where they've tended to cluster where they're looking for, you know, mm. original footprint. Right, right. And if I'm, uh, say I'm on the opposite side of that, you had mentioned out of your 17, last 17 transactions, it's about an equal split from you guys representing the buyers and the sellers. So if I'm a seller, um, how should I be thinking, you know, if I say I'm close to retirement and I want to sell, um, how can I lessen the complications of derailing a deal or how should I get my head around, you know, what steps I should be taking uh, as part of my exit strategy? So I think we both have a lot, lot to offer on, <laughs> on this question. Let us, let us count the ways. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll kick that off and, and 
So it's really, it's really important when you're a seller and you're thinking about doing a transaction that you start that thought process early, um, that you have the right resources around you, whether it's consulting, um, investment banking, legal, accounting, uh, information technology, um, and you be as prepared as you be as prepared as possible um, for for what will be coming in a due diligence review and and being able to identify some of those potential issues and and rectifying them. I mean, we've worked in the trenches on so many of these deals. So think about some of the things that yeah. we've had to encounter. I mean, and I I appreciate this question because you know, maybe we, maybe we'll reach some sellers who, uh, you know, we are always wishing that we, we got to speak to and advise our clients sooner in the process. Early on in the process, you can think about, um, as a seller, what level of involvement, if any, you mentioned somebody retiring. So probably none, if you're, if you're planning on retiring, but some sellers, um, will need to, or will want to remain in some former fashion after the transaction is completed. Some sellers will have key employees that Mm -hmm. they feel or know will need to be involved. So that'll affect the type of transaction that you're going to be looking at. How your, um, your corporate structure is arranged is, is going to be important. You're going to want to sit with certainly tax advisors ahead of time to think about if there are any, you know, assets that need to be owned differently before you go into a transaction or, um, or, you know, that type of thing, ways that you can prepare to do a clean transaction, you, you're going to think about, like Les said, your team, um, it'll involve maybe consultants, attorneys, accountants, but also probably an internal team. Um, yeah. You know, there's going to be people that are going to have to do a lot of work that they're not used to doing in their day-to-day jobs in order to respond to diligence requests, in order to... Um, you know, to move the transaction along. And one thing that we see a lot of from sellers that creates a lot of bumps is deal fatigue as the deal goes on and as the buyer asks more and more questions and as more documentation is needed. Um, it, it feels like an audit. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we, we want to help people um, be prepared as, as we're going to say that over and over again, <laughs> be prepared and yeah. have reasonable expectations. Expectation setting early on for the process of selling, I think is really important. Yeah. Now here's a, here's a question. So a home care agency is essentially a service-based agency with really, you could run an agency with really no, almost no assets. Right. I'm curious what the range would be for typical valuations, whether it's one times revenue, two times revenue, whatever it is. And I'm also curious the degree to which the intangibles come into play like brand equity within uh, your market, right? Are you getting more phone calls than your competition? Do you have um, a caregiver retention strategy that's stronger than other firms? Do you have better systems in place? I know it's a very loaded question, but I'm, I'm just curious what sort of range you typically see out there and what are those other intangibles that an exiting agency can really focus on to make sure that um, they're really attractive to a new, uh, to a buyer? Sure. So let me take the first part first, and that's on the valuation range. Um, And I think something that has historically been true in 
in, in the market. And, and that's really um, what's the size of the agency. And, and typically buyers are looking at EBITDA um, as, as their valuation multiplier. So there's a difference between an agency that has five or $10 million of EBITDA versus an agency that has 15 or $20 million. And the market has not surprisingly tended to pay more for um, the agencies of a, of a larger scale. Um, and that truism has, has been has been the case certainly as long as I can remember this bifurcation of, of size. Um, not that a smaller agency is necessarily, you know, run badly or, or has any any particular warts um, that, that are different, but that's just really the way that the financial buyers in particular have valued this. Um, the second part, and I think probably the thing that tends to derail deals almost more than anything else is compliance. Um, making mm. sure that you are regulatorily compliant um, and and being able to demonstrate that to a buyer early on um, really creates a high level of comfort and, and a buyer knowing that this company is well managed and they're not going to have a lot of headaches after the fact um, or, or looking at a lot of unexpected audits or uh, overpayment claims that are going to be coming in, and you know that creates a lot of um, ill will between the parties. And there's a lot of, that an agency can do before you're in the market to to make sure that you're as compliant as possible. You know, going through your documentation process, your intake process, your billing um, as needed. You know, bring on consultants that are, who who are going to run um, compliance checks for you and and give you um, you know, regulatory support beyond just traditional legal because um, the operational details are really important. And we see this constantly in, in deals that we work on. Right. Right. Hmm. All right. So stepping up the compliance game prior to uh, planning your exit strategy. Um, let's move on to uh, the moratorium for Medicaid agencies uh, in New York. Um I was wondering, I know Florida, I believe, is still active with their moratorium. Are you guys aware of any other states that have moratoriums on new Medicaid licenses? Uh, not, not that I've heard. Um, California had, had, a, had a hospice moratorium for a while. Uh, um, I think that that has been lifted. Um, you know, New York is an interesting place to, to do business. We're, we're a populous, um, a very you know, large state. Um, with a high demand for services. So it certainly is an important part um, of what the Department of Health regulates. Um, but that moratorium technically was is over um, and we're waiting for the new regulatory um, direction to come down from Albany. Um, we've been all waiting for some time for that for that to to uh, to happen and um, it could be this Friday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. I yeah. I heard that nothing's been published as of yet. <laughs> no, nothing's. And, and we're all keenly interested in, in knowing what the, uh, you know, what the next step is. So people are still continuing to, to transact, although we're just doing it in, you know, in, in, in different sure. ways that are that applying. Do, do you get a sense that uh, the moratorium has served its purpose? How do you feel that it's, it's worked out? I feel, and it, I, to my knowledge, it's been at least five years that it's been in place. 
I guess it depends on what you think the purpose was. I mean, if the purpose is to shrink is to shrink the number of providers in the state, it, it, I think it's definitely you know had an impact. I mean, there are less providers in the state than there there were before. Um, so, and, and I do think that that's probably been an unstated goal of the of the department is is to contract the number of providers that are, that are here, particularly right. in the state. Well, I know you guys have a memorial-style barbecue to uh, head to, so I'll get you guys out of here on this last question. What's your sense on uh, what's going to happen in the space over the next five years? So I think, you know, we've touched on a, a bunch of different aspects of this space that um, will continue to make it a strong area for investment. And I definitely think, that, you know, that we see the home health care industry remains strong. And I see that telehealth and other other tech innovations um, become prevalent to an app for anything that um, right now is being done, uh, you know, by telephone or in person, um, things like that. And, you know, home home delivery of medical devices, etc. Yeah, I think I think if history is is a guide, the industry will continue to be strong. Um, there's certainly an even further an enhanced recognition of the value of home care, um, that people want to be in their home. They would prefer not to be in congregate settings, um, that they can be comfortable at home and they can be taken care of it at home. And I do think that there are certain, some elements in Washington that recognize that um, and are supportive, supportive of it. So um, we think that the industry will continue to be strong and that M&A and activity will um, will remain vibrant. And certainly if there's a uh, silver lining to COVID, it has shined a, a light on uh, home care and home health. And, uh, you know, COVID's really expedited sort of innovation. And we're in a, a shockingly immature and uh, fragmented market. So it's good to see uh, consolidation and efficiencies and uh, moving towards a place where uh, we can all make sure that the people that need care in their home get it. Well, thanks uh, so much, uh, Karen and Les, for being here today. I've definitely uh, jotted down some notes of the, some things that uh, I learned, and I'll be keeping an eye on you guys. And I'd, I'd love to see uh, the deal uh, velocity t- uh, continue to be in explosion mode for you. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great talking to you. Likewise. Have a great rest of your week, Jeff, and, and thanks for talking with us today. All right. Take care. Home Health 360 is presented by Care. First off, I want to thank our amazing guests and listeners. To get more episodes, you can go to aliacare.com forward slash home health 360. That's spelled home health 360 or search home health 360 on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. The easiest way to stay up to date on our new shows is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for on aliacare.com forward slash homehealth360 to get alerts for new shows and more valuable content from Aliacare right into your inbox. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.